Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation chapter 14. And I want to say just a word about life groups myself, how much I appreciate them. And uh, probably a lot of you are in a life group today. We have life groups, by the way, there are small group Bible studies. They're for all ages, adults all the way through our youngest children. And um, probably I know a lot of you were in a life group already. You studied the Bible. You got connected with people. There's some real benefit to that. And if you need help finding a class for next week, We'd love to help you. We'd love for you to get in the class. I talked to a young man just uh, after the earlier service, and he said um, he didn't realize that life groups met on campus. There's a few of our young adult classes that meet somewhere else, but the vast majority meet here on Sunday morning. Most of them right here. I mean, all of those Sunday morning on campus. And so, just maybe you don't. Maybe just questions you have, just things you don't know about it. We'll be happy to help. But I want to encourage you to get in a life group each week. We'll help you find a place for the kids. Open your Bibles now, please, to Revelation chapter 14. And we're going through this book of the Bible, and I'm going to read the entire chapter 14. Can you do the whole chapter? Stay with me the whole chapter. So here's what I want you to do. If you'll open your Bibles, if you have your Bible with you, there's something good about it. I'm the old-fashioned hold-the-book sort of guy. But open your Bibles, and then keep it open because I'm going to refer back to verses. I'll read all the way through chapter 14. Are you ready? The Bible says, Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on, a mount, on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So I, uh, I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. But no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths, and they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice. Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another, a second angel followed, saying, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her, of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time, is, for the time to reap has come since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Then another angel, who also had a sharp sickle, came out of the temple in heaven. Yet another angel, who had authority over fire, came from the altar, and he called out, 
called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grape from the vineyard of the earth because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. Well, let's talk this morning on preparing for the end. One of the reasons God gives us this book of the Bible is to tell us what he is doing, the preparation that he's making for the end, and because he wants us to prepare for the end. And so God gives us a glimpse into what's going to happen so that we're prepared for the future and for what's going to happen so that we'll uh, learn the lessons that we need to learn. And so I want to mention three principles that we learned from this passage, and I want to encourage you to write them down. You can do this. Write them down. If you have your message notes, it's on the back of that, or you can do it on the church app. And just follow along. You'll probably remember better if you do that. Maybe pay attention better. Not that you wouldn't pay attention normally, but just in case. All right? Are you ready? Number one, would you write this down? God always fulfills his plans. It's one of the lessons God is teaching us here, that God is working. He's preparing. He has plans, and he's going to fulfill those plans. God is working. He's moving. He's preparing. He's planning, and those plans will be fulfilled, and we see a little of that in this book of Revelation. And the Bible tells us about a couple of particular plans that I want us to note this morning. First, note his plans for his people. The Bible tells us in verse 1 about the Lamb, that's the Lord Jesus. Remember, we see the Lamb that was slain several times in the book of Revelation, and this is a representation of Jesus who takes our place, sacrificed for us, and he's standing on Mount Zion, which is uh, a part of the, of the whole of Jerusalem, but sometimes used to describe all of Jerusalem. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on the foreheads. So in distinction to the, those are the mark of the beast, these are followers of Jesus. And the 144,000 have been mentioned before. These are Israelites who have trusted Christ as Savior, 12,000 from each tribe who have a special role to play at the end of time. There's going to be a great revival among those who know uh, uh, in the end of time, and particularly among these Jewish uh, believers. Now, there are Jewish believers today, of course, um, but not very many in Israel. Not very many. There are some who are following Jesus as the Messiah, but not a lot. But at the end of time, there will be many who will recognize who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah who came into this world, the fulfillment of all of God's plans, and they'll trust Christ as Savior, and God will use them in a special way at the end of time because God has plans for his people. God has plans for Israel. God, if you know the Old Testament story, you know a little of Israel. You can't miss it if you follow the Old Testament story. If you've not yet read the New Testament, I'm going to encourage you to read the New Testament several times, and then eventually the whole Old Testament. It's big. The Old Testament's big. It's a long story. There's a lot to it. And you see in the Old Testament, Israel, and how God chooses his people to, to use them, to work through them, how they have a tendency to run from him and rebel against him, and how God calls them back, how they end up in bondage and slavery, and God brings them to freedom. And we see a little of that story. Well, God's not finished with the people of Israel, and he's going to work, even though they're very few, relatively few, especially in the country of Israel. God's going to use them. And God's going to work in his people um, his family, those who know him as Savior. If you trust Christ as Savior, the Bible says you become a part of God's family. You're adopted into his family. 
And God has a story for you. And the pages of the Bible are a reminder of God's work and how God has done the work of redemption, how you can know him as Savior. And one day those plans will be fulfilled. One day those of you who know Christ as Savior will stand before him and enter your home that he's been preparing for you and all the purposes and plans that he has for you. And God has plans for his people. And God has plans for redemption. Notice, uh, let's go to the middle of verse 4. The Bible says about the 144,000. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. By the way, that's a really good definition of discipleship. You follow the lamb wherever he goes. So they said, listen, I don't, like, I don't want to lead my own life. They're saying, I don't want to just do what I want to do. I don't want to just follow the culture wherever the culture goes. I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow him. So what God wants for me, that's what I want for me. That's what they're saying. I'm following you. I'm not leading you. I'm not just following the easy way, but where you lead me, what you want for me, that's what I want. I'm going to follow the lamb. And by the way, is that, is that you? Does that describe you? I mean, are you just maybe making your own plans, going your own direction, and then asking God to bless? Or are you saying, God, I want to follow your direction, your plan? And that tell you, discipleship at its heart is just saying, I'm going to go wherever he goes, not just part of my life, not just the Sunday morning, but I'm going, to, I'm going to give you all of my life, wherever you lead, whatever you want, that's what I want, God. Notice verse 4 says they were, they were redeemed. There's that word, redeemed, from the humanity is the first fruits of God and the Lamb. Uh, verse 3 said they've been redeemed from the earth. The word redemption is a powerful word, and it, it's telling us that God buys us back. It is that God made us, created us for a purpose. We're His. We're created in the image of God. But in sin, we have rebelled against God. In the fall, all of, all of our creation and humanity is broken. And if you look closely at your own life, you'll see the brokenness there, won't you? The sin, the mistakes, the failures, the problems, the deceit, the wrong directions. And God, who is holy, made us for his purposes. We've rebelled against him. But in redemption, the Lord buys us back. Though we're rightly his by creation. He buys us back. And how? How does he buy us back? The blood of Jesus is the payment by which we are brought back into right relationship with God. Redeemed. Forgiven of our sins. This is God's plan for those who know him as Savior, and God will fulfill his plan. And if you know Christ as Savior, God has promised things to you. The book of Revelation is filled with promises for you about eternity, about forgiveness, about the things that you won't have to go through, the judgment that will be avoided because God always fulfills his plans. You know, my plans don't always go like I expect them to go. When I was young, I planned to play baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals, and it didn't work out. Although this year, I think uh, they might have needed me. That's what I think about this year. And then... I made plans to be a professional football player. That's what I do, play professional and play in the NFL. And I would have, except that I wasn't fast enough or strong enough or big enough or good enough. Outside of that, I could have played. I mean, I don't see what the problem was, but I didn't get to play. My plans don't always work out. 
But God's plans work out. And he's made plans for you. Did you know God has plans for you? And God has plans for this world. And God has plans for the future. And he's telling us something about that in this book of Revelation. And it is wise for us to say, God, I want my plans to match your plans. I want my direction to match your direction. Because God always fulfills his plans. There's a second principle I want you to note. Would you write this down? God fully reveals his truth. He fully reveals his truth. And we see in the pages of uh, Revelation 14 in particular, and really throughout the pages of the Bible, God fulfilling his truth. And notice what the Bible says in verse 6. The Bible says God announces his truth. Verse 6 says, I saw an angel flying overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. God's announcing the truth. When he says announce, it's saying this is special. It's sort of like you're watching the news perhaps and something breaks in because there's some event that's happening that everyone needs to know about. That's what the, that's what the gospel is doing here. It's, it's announcing, it's breaking into our lives and saying, this is so important. God is announcing it to you. The angels announcing it to you. And by the way, God even using us to announce the message to others. What an odd way for God to do his work, to say the reason. And in the, in the future, one day there'll be the angels proclaiming this gospel. But in this day, it's not the angels. It's us. Those of us who know Christ as Savior, we announce to others. That's what we do in our life groups. That's what, we, that's what I do as we preach. That's what we do in our singing. By the way, that's what God wants you to do in your own life, to be in a, an announcement of the truth of the gospel. Uh, verse 7 tells us these angels announce with a loud voice. It's saying this is important or urgent, and it matters so much. We're not just, we're not just sort of saying it casually. In verse 13, the Bible tells us, that uh, God writes his truth out. It's telling us that this is lasting and significant. So let's sort of note what's announced and what's announced with a loud voice and what's written about three things in particular. Number one is the gospel message. God reveals his truth in the gospel message. Verse six says, I saw another angel flying overhead with the eternal gospel. The gospel will matter forever to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people. So in heaven, There'll be people from every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people. Can I also tell you, by the way, that's kind of surprising to us. We say, oh, people from whatever, all around our globe, from every sort of background, who will be in heaven standing before the throne. And by the way, many from every sort of background who had every opportunity, every opportunity to trust Christ, who will be separated from God for eternity. Can I just warn you of that as well? So if this gospel message is announced. Well, what is it? I mean, if it's so important that the angels are going to announce it in eternity, what's, what is it? Let me, let me tell you first what it's not. It's not just, hey, try to be a little nicer. You know, could you just do better? Maybe don't be so mean. Like, be a little kinder. Go to church sometimes. You know, try not to be so ornery cuss less, drink less, misbehave less. That's how a lot of people see the faith. It's just like, uh, just change some of your moral behavior on the outside. Try to be a little bit better. Listen, can I, do you think, does the Bible tell us, tell us we ought to behave properly? Yeah, yeah. But the gospel is not, listen, if you'll just behave a little bit better, act a little nicer, everything will be okay. N- not at all. That's, you're missing the whole point of the gospel if you think that. 
Because the gospel is saying there's a deep problem and that we have sinned against God and we've gone our own way. And that sin is so serious that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're separated from God because God is holy and we're not. And we can't hope to reach God by our own merit. We can't be good enough to reach perfection. We can't do enough nice things. We can't be kind enough or stop doing enough bad things that we're okay in God's presence because God is holy and perfect and there's no hope for us except that Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Somehow God loved us in our brokenness and God came into this world. Jesus lived the perfect life for us and Jesus died the death we deserve. That's why, that's why he's called the lamb who was slain over and over in this book of the Bible. He died in our place. He took my sins upon himself on the cross and died for us, died for you on that cross. And he provided the miracle you needed in rising from the grave so that if you will turn from yourself and your sin, if you'll place your faith in Christ, Christ will save you. Not because you're good, but because he's good. Not because you deserve it even, but because he loves and he offers this great gift. And that's the gospel message. And can I just tell you, the the word gospel means good news. And one of the reasons it doesn't seem like that, uh, that big of a deal to many people is because they don't realize how bad the bad news is. But once you realize the badness of the bad news, how we're separated from God, how we have this terrible problem, there's no hope for us, then all of a sudden it changes things, doesn't it? Oh man, this is good news. God does for us what we could not do for ourselves. Christ died for us. There'll be a deeper appreciation for what the Lord has done. And so God fully reveals his truth in the gospel message. And then he fully reveals his truth in the futility of sin. Um, verse 7 and 8 talk about this. Um, he spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. We'll talk about f- what the fear of God. Because the hour of judgment has come. We'll talk in a moment about judgment. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the seas, and the springs of water. Verse 8 says, another, a second angel followed saying, it has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. We're going to see in a subsequent chapter, in a later chapter of the Bible, of this book of Revelation, the fall of Babylon. But I'll just mention that Babylon was one of the powerful cities of the ancient, of the ancient ages and how this, this city not only had great power and great wealth, but also great, great immorality and really, they became a synonym for immorality. Isn't it interesting that in our own generation, it seems as though in our country, as we've gained power and strength and wealth, we've, we have a tendency to forget God and, and go the way of immorality. And the Bible says Babylon uh, will fall and that there's a futility to sin. It seems so great. I mean, it seems so wonderful, but it's always a deception because it's, it's always leading to pain and death and heartbreak. And in fact, note it this way. Righteousness will win over immorality. That's what the Lord is saying in the long run. As he shows us the future, as he reveals his truth, Babylon will fall and righteousness will win over immorality. And then thirdly, what does the Bible announce? Well, the gospel message. What does it say with a loud voice? The futility of sin. Well, what does it write? Verse 13, the Bible tells us, tells John to write something. Verse uh, 13, John says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. By the way, what an odd juxtaposition of words. Blessed are the 
dead? Because we think of death as the end and the enemy. But the Bible says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Who die in the Lord. So even the sting of death has been removed. And this is the promise, the truth that God has John write for us so that we see this truth. Because God loves to tell us the truth. That's why we gather for worship. One of the reasons, one of the reasons we gather for worship. To sing the truth of who he is and what he's done to open his word and understand more of his truth. It's one of the reasons we gather in life groups and study God's word in small groups so that we can sharpen each other and understand more of what God's saying and what God's teaching us. It's why we read the Bible for, for ourselves and we have personal devotion so that we can learn what God teaches. God wants us to know the truth. He reveals the truth to us. I've, I've always known these things. In fact, I've been in worship and small groups for my life, but um, I didn't always do daily devotions. I, I, I came to know Christ as Savior when I was a boy. And I'd hear about from my teachers, from my pastors, more about reading the Bible for yourself, having a personal devotional time, a quiet time. And on occasion, I would. When I was uh, in high school, I moved to a new school, new town, new school, a new church, and that church had a student ministry. And I met some of my peers for the first time who were reading the Bible on their own, having a devotional time. And I would on occasion, but not very consistently. And then I went off to a Christian college, and um, my roommate in college started, uh, I mean, he had a consistent quiet time every morning. He was a math major. By the way, can you believe that someone would major in math? Is that not the craziest thing you've heard? Like, just take up math and just make that the subject that you study all day long. It's just, I, it's hard for me to imagine that people do that. And yet, that's what he did. I couldn't even talk to him about his classes. I didn't even understand the subject matter. It's just something about math and numbers. It was crazy. But one of the craziest things he did was he got up every morning and he read his Bible and spent time in prayer. And I said, man, if he can do that, I can do that. And I started that personal devotions on a consistent basis then. And I began to read the Bible for myself every day and um, spend some time in prayer. We say as a church, at least five days a week, read the Bible. For, read through the New Testament. Read through the whole New Testament many times. You don't have to go from Matthew, Mark, Luke. John. You can go in any order you want, but just follow along. You can read the Bible, read the New Testament, eventually all the way through the Bible. You'll get to know it and understand it, and you get to, God, has, heaven, it just gives you this truth. Read it for yourself. Gather with some small groups where people sharpen you. Worship the Lord with other people and the corporate worship. There's a value to all of that. God reveals his truth. There's a third thing I want you to get, and this one I want you to get. Don't miss this. God consistently follows his nature. God consistently follows his nature. And I want you to see verse 14 and then verse 19. You're going to see some unusual things in the Bible here. At least they'll seem unusual to you. Verse 14, then I looked and there was a white cloud and one like the son of man was seated on the cloud. So the picture of Christ on the cloud. All right, great, 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 wonderful. With a golden crown on his head. Awesome. He's got a golden crown on his head. Jesus on a cloud, crown on his head. And then it says, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Wait a second. A sickle? A sharp sickle? Why does Jesus have a sharp sickle? 
Well, we're going to see he's going to harvest this world. And then it gets worse. Verse 19, skip all the way down to verse 19. So the Bible says, so the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and he threw them into the great winepress of God's, you see it there? What does it say? Of God's wrath. I did not make this up. This is in the Bible. God's wrath. And you say, oh my goodness. This is the oddest sounding thing I've ever heard. The Bible said here, fear God. And it talks about judgment. And it says something about a sickle and a harvest and something about God's wrath. And you know why that's so hard for us? It's because we think of God like sort of like an elderly relative. And you go that elder, you don't see that relative that often. You go see the elderly relative, and because they're a relative, they just are so excited to see you. And they say, Oh my, you're so and they talk about how pretty you are, and they're a relative, they're obligated to say that. But they say, Oh, you're so pretty, and oh, you just oh so wonderful, you're so smart. Oh, they pat you on the hand, they're just so glad to see you. And they we think that's sort of, you know, that's sort of like what God is. God just pats us on the head. Oh my goodness, aren't you pretty? Oh my my, 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 what a wonderful boy. What a sweet little girl you are. Oh, my, my. And we say that's, that's how God is. Or we think of God like a sort of a cosmic Santa. And uh, I've got this, God, I've been a good boy this year. And I've got this list of things that I want you to do for me. And if you just do these things, because I've been so good for you this year. I don't know if you've noticed how good I am, but I've done. So I just made this list out for you, this helpful thing I want you to do. And that's how we sort of think of God. And then we come across something like God's wrath and judgment and uh, justice and holiness and responsibility and rebuke. And that's all, all those things in the Bible. So let me talk about two things and I'll maybe help you to understand this and why it's so important. So first, let's talk about God's nature. Because I said God consistently follows his nature. So if I were to say to you, what is God? How is God? How would you describe God? The vast majority of people in our Western world would say something about it. If they say anything about God at all, they would say God is love. Now, is it true that God is love? You think it's a trick question. It's not a trick question. Yes, God is love. Yeah, he's love. The Bible's filled with telling us about God's love, his grace, his mercy. God is love. We see that all over the pages of the Bible. But it's not the only part of God's nature that we see. We also see very often in the Bible, the same Bible that tells us about the love of God also tells us about the, that it says God is holy. God is holy. And that means God has got standards. He's without sin. And it's not an or. It's not God is love or God is holy. It is and. God is love, and God is holy. That is the nature of God. That is who he is. And God is consistent with his nature. So if all you've ever seen is the love of God, well, you've never seen all of God's nature. If if all you've ever seen is the holiness of God, you've not seen all of God's nature. Because it's not or, it's and. God is love and God is holy. Those two are who God is. All the, God is always that. So God's holiness means there are words in the Bible like righteousness, which suggests God expects us to live the kind of life he calls us to live. Justice, 
which means God is the righteous judge. By the way, not just the, like, uh, not, not the senile judge. It doesn't say that. The righteous judge. He knows the truth about our actions. He knows what we've done that's right and what we've done that, that are wrong. The Bible tells us that sin has consequences. Remember, uh, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Really bad news. Oh, Pastor Doug, you're really making us happy today. Accept that. You'll never appreciate God's love without appreciating, appreciating God's holiness. He is love and he is holy. And he consistently follows his nature. And so when the Bible talks about God's wrath and God's judgment, that is consistent with the nature of God. And when the Bible tells us this, because we have a warning so that we can see the truth and turn from sin to God, it is consistent with his nature as a God who loves. Now, I've talked about God's nature. Let me just mention for a moment our response. And I see a couple of responses we could make. One is to try to change God and to try to change his nature. So we may redefine God. We'll just say, listen, let's just leave out the part about the holiness of God. Let's just focus on the love of God and forget about the rest. We'll just redefine God. This happened many times. If you decide to do it, join the long group of people who've tried that. We'll just redefine who God is. We'll just make him God who loves and the God who's like the elderly, elderly relative who pats us on the head, the cosmic Santa Claus who we just give our list to when we want something. And we'll just try to redefine um, who God is. Or we'll just ignore. We'll just ignore it. We'll pretend it away. We'll pretend that God doesn't have any requirements of us, that we can do whatever we want, and there's no consequences, that sin doesn't really matter after all. Let's just, let's just try to change God. Or, instead of trying to change God, our response could be, we'll allow God to change us. We'll allow him to change us. Instead of trying to change God in his nature, we'll allow God to change us in our nature. And so we'll receive him as our savior. We'll recognize that we are lost without Christ, that we need to be saved, that Jesus said, you must be born again. And we will turn from ourselves and give our life to Christ, place our trust in Jesus who died for us and rose from the grave for us. Recognize that we're saved by his blood shed on Calvary. And then if we'll place our faith in him, he will save us. We'll find forgiveness full and free in him. Those of us who know Christ as Savior, when we respond to his nature, allowing God to change us, we return to God. Instead of just ignoring God or redefining God, we return to him and say, God, I want your way and not my way. I want to be prepared for the end, seeing what is coming. I want to be prepared, knowing that you're a righteous God, that you rightly judge sin, that in your the elderly relative would never rebuke us, right? He would never correct us. They don't see us that often. They don't discipline us. But God, out of his love, out of his love, rebukes us, disciplines us, corrects us because he loves us. And when we recognize that, we allow God to change us. And God, I want to come back to you, to your purposes and plans. So let's bow together for a word of prayer. And let's respond to the Lord. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, I want to ask you today, right where you are, to give your life to Christ. To acknowledge before God that you've sinned against him. He's holy and perfect that you've sinned against him. That you're unworthy to come into his presence. He's holy and you're not. 
but recognize that he, he did something about that brokenness. Christ came into this world to live for you and die for you and rise from the grave for you. So right where you are today, would you receive him as Savior? Give your life to Christ. Ask him to save you, and he will. Christian, would you say, God, I want to recognize that you're preparing for the future, and I want to do so as well. And so where I have gone my own way or forgotten about you or ignored you, I want to return to you. I want to come back to your better purpose and plan knowing that one day I'm going to stand before you, either through the air or through the veil. I'm going to stand before you, Lord. I want, to, I want to be prepared for that day that you tell me about in your word. And Father, I want to thank you for the truth you give us here in your word. Help us to see who you are, that you are holy and righteous, that you, that you tell us the truth, even when it means rebuke or correction, but also that you love us, and you've done something about our brokenness and our need. And so, Father, we want to ask you to save people who are lost and to help those of us who know you're a Savior to come back to you where we've strayed. And we give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.